you're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network. It may look like an ordinary podcast, but this one's bigger on the inside, and it can travel anywhere in time and space. Pack your sonic screwdrivers and your jelly babies. Grab your hats, scarves, and tighten your bow ties. You're the companion now. So get ready to run with your hosts, Jason Hunt and Paul Gann. This is Talking Time Lord. Hey everybody and welcome back to another fantastic episode of Talking Time Lords. This is episode number 20, Under the Flood. I am as always one of your hosts, Jason Hunt, and with me, my companion through podcasting time and space, we have Paul Gann. Don't kiss me, morning breath. (laughs) (laughs) How's it going, Paul? (laughs) A little bit of allergy issues, that's all. No, that's fun. Um, I sound like a bullfrog. Bullfrog Paul. <laughs> well, this is exciting. We hit 20. Big 2 0. Yes. I, it's like. I'm excited. It's it's one of those numbers that's like, yay, we made it to something. <laughs> well, it's a milestone. It's a milestone of sorts. Yeah. I'm just happy that we keep doing this and that <laughs> 20 is not where we stop. <laughs> I'm just happy that people are listening. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, our numbers are doing pretty well, all things considering. You know, us being a, a, a sort of small little Doctor Who podcast that's new. The new kid on the block, the new TARDIS on the block. And we're not really doing any sort of, like, active promoting other than on social media. Just yeah. kind of floating along and hoping for the best at this point. <laughs> but, I mean, we, we still, uh, you know, looking at some of our numbers... All of our podcasts keep getting downloads, so people are finding us, and they're going back and downloading everything. So hopefully, people are telling their friends about us, and you know, that's nice. Yeah, that <laughs> would be nice. <laughs> but enough about us and our it's shameless self-promotion. More on that later. No, um, we still want your reviews. <laughs> we're gonna get that out of the way now, and then we're gonna jump into this episode where we are. Going okay, to be I'll dis- ask later. <laughs> <laughs> but on this episode, we are going to be review, discussing and reviewing uh, the last two-parter uh, to premiere on BBC over the last two weeks, Under the Lake and Before the Flood, starring, of course, Peter Capaldi as the Doctor. Uh, of course, huge spoiler warning if you have not watched these episodes, what are you doing? Go watch them. It's yeah. new Doctor Who, folks. Don't be a dinghy. <laughs> a dinghy? Never mind. You know. A dinghy is a life raft. Yeah. 
Yes. And I don't know why I would be calling people a dinghy because they're not life rafts. But. Spoilers. Spoiler warning. Otherwise, jump into your dinghies and float away. Because we're going to be talking everything about these episodes. <laughs> I, I beat the horse far enough that I was able to get back on it and ride away. Um, oh. Wow. <laughs> I am talking myself into about five different holes, and we're only like two minutes into the episode already. <laughs> And you're just letting me. <laughs> because it's so fun. <laughs> <laughs> oh. oh, man. All right. Uh, before we start getting into the details, <coughs> before we start getting into the details, and of course, we'll be jumping all over the place with this episode. We don't have to go through chronological order uh, per se. General thoughts, Paul, on, on this two-parter. I think I like the second half better uh, than the first half. I watched it twice. <laughs> um, partially because I wanted to make sure that I didn't get mixed up on anything, um, all things considered. But the second time I watched it, I liked it better than I did the first time. Yeah, no, I, I would, I'm going to uh, second that. Uh, the, the first episode was, was decent. Um, I liked it, but it doesn't take much for me to like an episode of Doctor Who, but the second episode really sort of elevated the story beyond what I thought it was going to be based on previews and based off the first episode. I will say that it, it definitely exceeded my expectations. I, I figured we'd get, you know, the big bang right off the back with the return of Davros on the season of premiere and that sort of thing. And then we'd sort of settle down into what about the average of what we were going to get. And I think under the lake, the first episode in the two-parter right. did that, but before the flood, at least for me, definitely elevated my idea of what average might be for this season, because I really liked that episode. Of course, we'll get into details here as we go, but yeah, I'm going to have to this agree. also one of those weird times where you see the Doctor break the fourth wall again. I loved that. Okay, no. let's talk. Let's start our, <laughs> our discussion with that because that is one of my favorite things I've seen this season so far. Yes, it's only four episodes in, but <laughs> I loved the fact that the Doctor talked directly to us, and obviously they had to do this to sort of you know get us prepared for what we were going to experience at the end of the episode. Well, they they didn't have to for us per se, but they did for the overall general audience. Uh, us meaning the audience, but uh, it was, it was one of those things I really liked because you know he gets goes gets to go on this little monologue where it's just him and us, and you know we get a little peek into what the Doctor is like, and and maybe he's actually just talking to himself in the TARDIS, you know, looking at this imaginary camera that's you know following him around. But obviously it was a, a fun little monologue, and I liked the whole you know who wrote Be who really composed Beethoven's Fifth. Right. And then the cherry on top was the doctor himself, Peter Capaldi, playing electric guitar for his own theme song. <laughs> yeah. And it was really good. I mean, it was really it good. It added something that it had been missing before, I think. I hope, yeah. they, I hope they leave it in there. You are not the first person I've seen say that. It was definitely something that was 
unexpected but really fun for the theme uh, to get that electric guitar in there. And I think for Capaldi's Doctor, it really works to have it. And I, like you, I hope it sticks around. So I was watching, I was rewatching the episode tonight, and the theme music came on. And my daughter walks through the room and she goes, That's different. I said, Yeah. She goes, That's got to be the best opening credits I've ever seen for that show. And I'm like, <laughs> really she's like yeah that's awesome and I'm like, hey i agree <laughs> that's really cool <laughs> all right well let's get into the episode directly uh not just that little who wrote beethoven's fifth which is always a fun science fiction conundrum when you have a time traveler go back and the person that they really wanted to see and meet didn't actually exist and they have to sort of be that person but then, how do they like that person in the first place? You know, right. sci-fi loves to do that sort of thing when it comes to time travel. It's not an original thing to Doctor Who. Well, see, that's the reason I said that they didn't necessarily have to do it for, like, you or I. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's because you and I have seen those types of storylines before, but some people are kind of new to the whole wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey storytelling, and I think that this was... I think it was more of a setup for the people... They're kind of new to that, just so that you can kind of get them ready for it, you know. And uh, before we continue on, uh, we do have one response for us uh, as far as uh, your listener feedback as on these two episodes. My mom actually wrote this in, uh, <laughs> so <laughs> she nice. she she enjoys the show too, and and so she watched it as well. Um, and this is largely in regards to the second episode her comment is the question is once you're in that kind of time warp loop how do you get out i guess it's the funky u2 glasses the doctor is sporting now so (laughs) (laughs) yeah i think it's the new glasses i mean they obviously seem to be good for just about everything (laughs) in this episode has your opinion changed on the sonic shades well okay like i said i'm the old man on the show okay but the the sonic screwdriver has been around forever at least what 48 years probably something like that when you change a staple like that it's going to make some ripples and some waves i like the sonic shades but at the same time i i like the sonic screwdriver (laughs) you know (laughs) i think i was telling you uh, before we started the show I feel like if I don't like the Sonic Shades, it makes me a fuddy-duddy, you know? And if <laughs> if I do like the Sonic Shades, then I'm being, like... Betraying the Sonic Screwdriver? Yeah, disloyal to the Sonic Screwdriver, you know? And I'm like... And I know it's an inanimate object on a TV show, but I'm like... But it's kind of like its own character, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I mean, it, it to me, it has almost as much personality to it as the TARDIS does, you know? Yeah, I can see that. Um, I'm still holding on to the idea and the opinion that this is a fad that the Doctor's going through. And, and he's going to fall off the Sonic Shades bandwagon here by the end of the season and go back to a screwdriver. The, the one thing that you know some people may not know is that during the fifth Doctor's run, the Sonic screwdriver was done away with. 
there is an episode where he's trying to unobtrusively use it to get out of prison, and one of the bad guys catches him using it, throws it on the ground, and promptly shoots it with a ray gun. And it sparks and melts and completely deforms. And he makes the comment of, I just feel like you killed a very old friend. And then he doesn't pull pick up a sonic screwdriver until the movie in 1996. Uh, the Sixth Doctor doesn't have it, although he uses a sonic lance for an episode or two, which is somewhat similar, but he mainly uses it to stab a Cyberman in the neck. Um, <laughs> and then, of course, the Seventh Doctor had his umbrella, which was handy for just about everything. And so he didn't have the sonic <laughs> screwdriver, but they had other things. But for a while there, the Doctor didn't have it around. So Even the Eighth Doctor didn't have it for that story. It got snatched, and he didn't get it back until the end of the story. So Right. The Seventh Doctor uses it at the very beginning, right before he regenerates, and then he gets it back at the end to finish making the, modific- the repairs on the TARDIS or whatever. Right. I, I feel like they probably did that uh, in a way to show the passing of time. To show that it had been a few years, which you could look at the doctor and tell it had been a few years, but um, I still think that they they did that just to kind of show that some things have happened since the last time you saw him, and now he's got it. Now he's got a new one, or now he's repaired the old one, or whatever. But yeah, so it's not the first time the Sonic Screwdriver has not been in use. It's just the first time in the new series. So we'll see what happens. I think it'll come back um, at some point during the season but I don't think it'll be anytime soon if, if they bring it back it'll be a completely different style I, I almost expect them to do something uh, maybe around the time of the Christmas episode or something mm-hmm. uh, possibly maybe even explain that that's where River Song got her Sonic from Who knows? you know I mean that could be kind of interesting too who knows who knows <laughs> sorry great curator <laughs> but let, let's talk about actual things in the episode this, the setting for this episode is primarily this underwater base in the 22nd century called the drum what did you think of of the crew of the drum by the way because you know it's it's a sort of a motley crew and it's they're kind of your standard spunky crew that the doctor runs across except for the fact that one of the leaders of it is deaf right which i thought was really unique and really kind of cool well, it also made for interesting storytelling because it gave you the ability to have your, not necessarily your villainous characters, but your your creepy characters be mute. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're talking, but you can't hear them, you know, so she has to read their lips to mm-hmm. tell you tell you what they're saying. And, you know, I thought that was kind of an interesting tool uh, because... To me, the fact that they're talking to you, but you can't hear what they're saying, it added a whole other level to the creep factor, you know? Right. Um, so I, I thought that was a neat way to, to do that, you know? And and, and Cass, the, the deaf character, she and uh, Lun, I think is his name, her translator, mm-hmm. they actually ended up being some of my favorite, yeah, some of my favorite characters. Uh, in these episodes, other than of course the Doctor. One but. thing, one thing that I will say is, I think it ended up being fine. It ended up being you know something where you got to know the characters over time. 
Mm -hmm. But I think that they missed a little bit of an opportunity on the front end for you to get to know some of the characters a little bit better. Right. You know, because everything started so quickly at the beginning of the story that you really didn't get to see any real back and forth between, you know, the, the characters in the base and everything. Uh, so you didn't really get to see their personalities and stuff of how they would be in an uh, environment where they weren't running and screaming for their lives, basically, <laughs> you know? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah, I can see that. We got a little bit more of that with the uh, the second episode, a little more in-depth with the characters with the second right. episode in Before the Flood, but that's because we'd already done a bunch of the setup to begin with and, in and Under the Lake. By that time, several of them were already dead, and, you know. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> well, they didn't matter anyway. We didn't even know them, you know. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, <laughs> but let's get on to the fact of why some of them are dead. Uh, the The story starts off with these these crew members who are mining for oil in Scotland where a military village that you know had been used for testing had been flooded you know back in the 1980s and they have run across this spaceship that's under there and so they've pulled it out of the water and they're examining it uh, and it's interesting because there's these markings on the inside that you know are very obviously an alien script of some sort but they have no idea what it says and you get the idea early on that it's sort of imprinting something because you get the shot every time they look at it someone looks at the words you get the shot of that character's eye with the the letters basically reflecting off of their eye right and so you get the idea that it's imprinting something but of course real quick off the bat there's this ghost of mole man <laughs> Mole Man. Yes. Uh, <laughs> who we later find out is an undertaker named Prentice from the planet Tivoli. The most More invaded on... planet in the universe. Yes. They act like it's a good thing, you know? <laughs> They're so accommodating. Um... We're the most invaded planet in the universe. <laughs> <laughs> If you enslaved us, you'd be home by now. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, my goodness. Um, I, I like that character so much. I, I, you know, I almost wanted the doctor to go back and, like, not let him die, you know. <laughs> He's so goofy, but I loved him just the same. It harkens right back to the, to the uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy stuff that I was talking about before. Because some of the stuff that was written, like back in the Fourth Doctor uh, time and things like that, uh, were written by the same writer. Very cool. <laughs> but anyway, uh, Prentice, the ghost of Mole Man past, uh, ignites the engines for a brief moment of this spaceship and fries the commanding officer of the base. He's complete toast. And it cuts to the credits with the rest of the crew running for their lives from the ghost apprentice and their the ghost of their commander. Yeah. And so we've got ghosts in a secluded base in a lake under the water, um, <laughs> very deep in a very remote area. 
Welcome to Doctor Who. <laughs> uh, am I the only one that, that uh, associated the behavior of the ghosts with the behavior of, say, like the Cybermen? How so? Completely void of any emotion at all. Completely void of anything other than just being a mechanical entity, per se. Um, you know, it's like, I have a mission... I'm doing my mission, and if you don't have anything to do with my mission, I'm going to walk right past you and go take care of my mission. And if I, you know, if you get in my way, I will pick up a fire axe and hack you in too. You know, <laughs> that kind of thing. They literally were like machines to me. In a sense, yeah, um, and we especially sort of get that sense later as the story unfolds and what they really are unfolds at the end of uh, Before the Flood. But they are kind of just tools in a sense. Right. But in the, at the beginning, they're just kind of really creepy, a little bizarre. Yeah. Because, you know, no eyeballs in their sockets. You know, there's nothing like in those smoke. sockets. <laughs> of course, the Doctor and Clara land in the middle of this mess and Clara's going on and on about, you know, needing adventures and explosions and danger, you know. Which uh, she's obviously still in denial about losing Danny, and we get sort of hints about that a couple times throughout the story arc. But she's still she's in denial, and she's trying to. She's what? She's compensating. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. She almost lets the cat out of the bag at one point. She almost says that she has replaced her fixation with Danny now with her fixation on the Doctor. She almost says it. Right. At one point. She needs him to continue taking her on these adventures so that she doesn't have to think about the pain of losing Danny. Right. Which, I mean, we don't get a lot from her, you know, below the surface in these two episodes, but we do get a little bit of that. And that's something that I think is, while dwelling on the whole Danny relationship thing is not something I wanted to do, I think this is important for her character. That these sort of things are important for her character because clearly if something like this isn't going on, she's just a heartless person uh, who's moved on way too fast from her, you know, boyfriend who was killed. Even if it's been months, she's still going to have residual pain and residual, well, how, how would you say, PTSD, basically? Mm -hmm. Trauma. Because depending on the relationship, there's certain people that you literally never completely recover from losing. Um, they're always going to be below the surface, simmering under the surface. And I, right. think, I think that's what she's got in her situation now. And um, I, I think that it, it also has her kind of in a transitional phase uh, because she will eventually be able to let him go and move on, but she's not there yet. The Doctor and Clara run into the situation. They start learning what's going on. And the Doctor poo-poos the whole ghost idea, but then they have <laughs> a run-in with the ghosts, and he completely does a 180 on that. And he's like, they're ghosts! I thought that and... was funny, you know? <laughs> he's like, he weighs all of, the, all of the data, and then he goes, there's only one solution! They're ghosts! And she's like, but you just said ghosts didn't exist! And he's like... Well, neither did socks. <laughs> <laughs> Until they were. You know. 
I can't remember what all he, he mentioned, but I know socks was one of those. You know. Oh. Oh my gosh. He has a he has a lot of good one liners this season. And then he gets so excited about the idea of ghosts because it's something that's never been explored, and there's so many fascinating possibilities. You could talk to them and ask them and see if they could talk to you and find out. You know. Do they still get hungry? Are they sad that they're not alive? You know, that sort of thing. Wow! <laughs> and then realizes that, oh, the crew don't want to know this because one of their friends got killed and is a ghost. Right. And we get another really great thing where Clara's like, the cards, the cards. And the doctor's got flashcards for sympathetic <laughs> responses to these situations. <laughs> He's got sympathy flashcards. Because this this incarnation of the Doctor has a very uh, detached personality when it comes to dealing with other people. Well, <laughs> and if you go way back to Inside the Dalek, uh, Clara is his carer. Yes, she cares so I don't have to. You know, <laughs> He's getting better about it, but mm-hmm. he's still not there. <laughs> She's probably the one who made the flashcards for him in the first place. Exactly. <laughs> so... Oh my goodness! And he's, was... he's flipping through the flashcards, trying to figure out which one makes the most sense for the situation. <laughs> and, and she has to help him pick the one out. And then he just reads the whole thing verbatim, rather than customizing blanks and all. <laughs> yep. So sorry, your loved one slash friend slash pet. <laughs> and they all just sort of look at him. <laughs> And he th- and he moves on because it's too awkward. <laughs> he still has a, just a tiny bit of Matt Smith in there, you know. A little bit. Uh, the awkwardness. It, yes, except rather than just you know a general awkwardness, this doctor is incredibly socially awkward. Well, he, he, his 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 normal mode is social faux pas. <laughs> well, he's 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 also drawing a lot off of Tom Baker's Doctor as well. Uh, I can tell that. In what ways? You know? Well, in in a lot of the one-liners and stuff that he gives, the way that he delivers those, and you know the the fact that he's he acts borderline distracted half the time. You know, the way that he talks to Clara reminds me a lot of the way that he used to banter back and forth with Romana and. It, I just get that vibe off of him. Gotcha. There, it's, well, it's not a clone. <laughs> I no. Mean, that, clearly not a clone, but there's just aspects of the, the character that I, I see coming out. Definitely. Uh, well, of course, one of the crew is, of course, the, the money man behind the whole operation. And when he finds out that there's a spaceship and that one of the power cells is missing, which is most likely very valuable, he, of course, goes out to look for it in, you know, the underwater suit and that sort of thing. Meanwhile, the ghosts have figured out how to take control of the base, and since they can only come out in night mode, they have reinstigated night mode way too early. And while O'Donnell is trying to restore uh, day mode, everyone else is, you know, getting ready to go back into the Faraday cage, which is the only place that the ghosts can't get into. And, of course, uh, this guy, and I'm blanking on his name, but he doesn't really matter, because, as the doctor says, you're an idiot. (laughs) That guy actually reminded me a little bit of the 
the guy from uh, the very first time Rose meets the Dalek. Oh, oh, um, just the Dalek. Yes. yes. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Because the... all he cared about was what he could get out of the situation. Right. What <laughs> What is considered an people. asset that they could... And what is actually considered an asset that he could make money off of. Exactly. Um, and he was the first one to bite it. <laughs> yeah, which, you know, we're not exactly disappointed with. Well, uh, the way that he bought it was uh, kind of... It was almost like getting spaced, you know? Yeah. He's, <laughs> he's in the... Basically, the... What's the word? The airlock. He's in the airlock, uh, you know, with the water draining out from his excursion out onto the, the lake bed. And one of the ghosts uh, basically just um, opens the airlock to the lake while he's inside without his helmet on. Yeah. And he gets sucked out. He gets sucked out and drowned, and <laughs> it's wonderful because he hits the window later, and it's thump. really yep thump. <laughs> but now there are three ghosts, and they figure out how to turn it back into day mode. But the doctor wants them to turn it back into night mode because they need to catch a ghost. So there's this whole you know nice action scene where they're running through the base trying to catch the ghosts inside the Faraday cage. And the interesting thing is Lun does not get killed when he gets trapped by a ghost. He does not get killed by the ghost for some reason. We don't know why. See, it red, it red flagged it for me as soon as they said that these things could not get in or out of the Faraday cage because of the magnetic fields and stuff. Uh-huh. You know, because I knew at that point something besides just spirit had to be going on with this thing. Yes. Um, it wasn't just a ghost. It has something to do with the writing on the inside of the spaceship because Lun is the only one who hasn't actually seen it. Because Cass, the, the gal who he signs for, or translates for, won't let him inside the spaceship because it's too dangerous. And we find out why later. Yes. <laughs> but they catch the ghosts and through the use of uh, webcam, the webcam feature on the Sonic's shades uh, connecting to the base's Wi-Fi, because they can do that, the Doctor gets in close to the ghosts, and Cass, the, the deaf crew member, is able to lip-read what the ghosts are saying, because they've been repeating the same phrase over and over again the whole time, uh, obviously silently, because we can't hear them, but at some points it looks like they're trying to shout it, and it's the dark, the sword, the forsaken, the temple. Mm-hmm. And being the clever one he is, the doctor deduces this is a set of coordinates for the church that is in the submerged city outside, the submerged village outside. And that the words on the inside of the spaceship are the coordinates as well. The interesting thing about these words is that they're not just, you know, glyphs, or they actually have some sort of psychic weight to them, in that they imprint those coordinates on whoever looks at them. And then when they die, well, uh, we're going to skip around here just a little bit to the explanation, because I, yeah. I think we need to. When they, When the person dies after seeing the 
these glyphs, they become a transmitter by repeating these these coordinates. And someone on the other end will eventually, once the signal becomes strong enough and you get enough peop- dead ghosts repeating this, help will come for whoever is in the missing uh, stasis chamber that should have been in the ship. It's basically a merging of supernatural and scientific uh, because the doctor says that they're actually capturing the human soul and projecting it into an electromagnetic being. It's, it's almost like becoming a slave once you've died. The story end, or the, the first episode ends with the doctor deciding that he needs to go back to the beginning. Go back in time to the beginning to when the village was first submerged and find out what happened because that's the only way he's going to stop it and during the course of getting back to the TARDIS the ghosts have been at it with the the base and they start flooding a section of the base and the doctor and Clara and the crew end up getting split up the doctor gets uh, split up on the side of the TARDIS with Bennett and O'Donnell and Clara gets left in the drum with Cass and Lunn. The Doctor takes off, and the final shot of Under the Lake is the Doctor's ghost appearing underwater outside the window. Yeah. Did that creep you out at all? I was like, what? <laughs> I mean, his ghost is the creepiest looking ghost. And I don't know if it's just because of the intense wrinkly face and crazy hair, but his ghost was the creepiest. Uh, and like I said, I don't know if that's just because of the way it looked or because it's the doctor. It, it automatically, if you know anything about Doctor Who history and Doctor Who lore, it automatically makes you think of uh, that just created a fixed point in time. And that can't be changed, you know? <laughs> and so now what, you know? <laughs> right. <laughs> but what I thought was interesting, or it, it's a little bit humorous actually, is when we get into the next episode and Clara starts telling the doctor that she's just seen his ghost. <laughs> Once he's finally gotten over the initial shock, uh, I can't remember the exact lines, uh, but he basically says, uh, well, I've had a good go of it. Uh, this this uh, incarnation was basically a clerical error anyway, you know? <laughs> <laughs> His regeneration was a clerical error. Oh, my goodness. Of course, that happens when the Time Lords reset your regenerations. But I still, yes, the, I still think that they reset Missy's as well. I think through some sort of side effect, hers got. Oh, I think Rassilon had something to do with it, but we'll get to that later. Oh, <laughs> that's just my opinion. Because Rassilon is not a nice man, and he does not like the Doctor. No. And the last time that you saw the Master before returning as Missy. He got sucked through the portal with Rassilon. Did no, he didn't get sucked through. Back to Gallifrey. Uh, no, he didn't get sucked through. He's. I thought the Doctor saved him, and he died in the Doctor's arms. No. 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 Oh, it's been a little bit since I've seen that episode. I have to go back and check. 
because that was right before the knocking of you know four times and that's right uh, he got pulled back to Gallifrey with the with the high council fun <laughs> during <Yep>. the time war <laughs> so that I, can't be good I fully believe that Rassilon gave him more regenerations so that he could uh, be harass the doctor be used as a tool to go after the doctor interesting <laughs> side tangent folks uh, has nothing to do with the story that we're talking about but hey that's what happens when you talk doctor who well we're talking about regeneration so you know i thought yeah. it's interesting yeah <laughs> i do have to say well the, the first of all the doctor talks to amy or amy wow <laughs> we talked about amy last episode go back and listen to episode 19 if you want to hear our, our thoughts on amy the doctor, in talking to Clara and finding out that his ghost is there uh, in Clara's time zone, well, let's just say he has to have a conversation with himself and try and figure out what's going on. And the doctor ghost is saying stuff that's different from all the other ghosts. He's not saying the dark, the sword, the forsaken, the temple. He's giving a list of names of people on on the base and then he changes again and says something and says that oh what is it the the chamber will open tonight yes the chamber will open tonight referring to the stasis chamber that they found and pulled out of the the church with a submarine forgot to mention that that happened in the first episode and of course they pull it out and it's locked and the doctor can't open it and Clara says, so the pilot's in there. And the doctor says, should be. But why do I get the unfortunate feeling that, I, that it's not? <laughs> yeah. We cut back to the doctor, O'Donnell, and Bennett as they uh, emerge onto this little village in the military. You know, it's basically a military training facility uh, emulating Russia because this is the height of the Cold War. Before it got flooded. Uh, and they step out. And one of my favorite things in this episode happens. O'Donnell pretends like she has a rock in her shoe. The doctor walks <laughs> off because they're going to catch up. And she turns to Bennett and starts jumping around like a little schoolgirl saying, It's bigger on the inside! It's bigger on the inside! It's bigger on the inside! <laughs> yeah, and the interesting thing for me is the fact that she's the only one there besides Clara who knew who the doctor was already. Yes. She used to be in military intelligence. Uh, and so I'm guessing that military intelligence in the 22nd century works with unit. Probably. And so she knows all about the doctor. And she mentions... Uh, Martha and somebody else. Martha, Rose, and Amy. Yeah. And then says, when they go back to 1980 for the village, she says, oh, that's pre-Harold Saxon's reign and before the Minister of War. Yeah. Now, the Minister of War is not someone we have met yet. Yeah. Will we see the Minister of War this season? Hmm. <laughs> Perhaps. <laughs> Maybe next season. You know, who knows? <laughs> now, that's, that's a nugget of information that I feel like has been placed there deliberately and not just a throwaway reference. I think we're going to see the Minister of War and what's going on with that at some point, but 
when that will be and what the Minister of War is all about? I don't know. Sometimes I wonder if they put things like that in there just so they have some jumping off point if they want to do something with it in the future, but they don't really have anything pre-planned. True. I, I wonder sometimes if they do that because by referencing events that we've never seen on screen that they then can go back and play with at a different point. I think they, they leave themselves openings for different story ideas and stuff. And they may not, they may not even have a story idea in, in mind, but they just have a character in mind and they're like, well, we can reference this character. And if we decide to use this character two seasons from now, all we have to do is think of a good story. Well, that's yeah. true, because uh, the 11th Doctor mentions something about a mummy on a train. He keeps getting a call about a mummy on a train. <laughs> but he never responds, and he doesn't do anything about it. And then, of course, we get Mummy on the Orient Express last season. Right. Who knows? <laughs> Perhaps we will. That's kind of interesting. Why, why do I keep getting a call about a mummy on a train? <laughs> <laughs> Oh goodness! <laughs> uh, it's like that, like that, uh, that movie "Snakes on a Plane." You know, <laughs> for for a longest time, it, it wasn't even real, and people kept talking about the story idea online. And then finally, a studio made a movie of it just because it became such a popular online meme. You know? Wow! So, yeah. <laughs> I still have not seen that movie, and I'm not sure I want to. <laughs> Well, it's Sam Jackson in his, you know, his best uh, colorful language. So. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, we <laughs> we start jumping back and forth between the village and the drum. On the drum, the Doctor's ghost has unlocked the Faraday cage and released the rest of the ghosts. Clara, uh, Lun, and Cass manage to. Sn- to slip back into the Faraday cage to keep themselves safe, but Clara has to be able to keep an eye on her phone, which is being set outside of the Faraday cage because it can't receive cell signals uh, inside. Because, because the, the doctor may need to magnetic fields. Yeah, because the electro- electromagnetic fields, and the doctor may need to contact her again. The doctor, meanwhile, starts exploring the town with Bennett and O'Donnell. And they start hearing giant footsteps and this roaring. And, of course, what do they do? Well, they run. They start running through buildings and trying to hide from whatever this menace is. After, of course, talking to Prentice, the uh, undertaker from Tivoli, which I love. I love this scene. He was so goofy. And I love Bennett's line. Great. I finally meet a proper alien and he's an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, because, it was so well done, though, you know? <laughs> because Bennett is one of those guys who is very excited about the fact that this was a spaceship and that this is extraterrestrial stuff going on. And he thinks it's so amazing and fascinating. And so he's like, great, my first alien. And he's an idiot. It was, it was, straight out of a, a Douglas Adams novel. I mean, <laughs> what can I say? 
Yep. <laughs> yep. But there's this this creature called the Fisher King, who was supposed to be dead because that's why Prentice was there in the first place. He was going to bury the Fisher King on Earth at the behest of the latest enslavers of Tivoli. And, of course, Prentice does not survive uh, his encounter with the Fisher King. And, unfortunately, neither does O'Donnell. She gets separated from the Doctor and Bennett as they are running. And, of course, you know, when someone gets separated in any sort of movie, horror, adventure, otherwise, something bad always happens to the person by themselves. And she gets shot, and Bennett does not take it well. He had feelings for her, but he never acted on them, and now that's going to haunt him. But uh, O'Donnell is doing some haunting of her own. Now that she's a ghost, she appears back on the drum and steals Clara's phone. And so Clara has to figure out a way to get the phone back. See, that's something that I kind of questioned, you know, because these things are not supposed to be sentient. They're supposed to be mechanical. And so somebody had to program her to do that. Well, the thing is, is that they do anything that they can in order to complete their mission. And, you know, whether that is showing the Doctor and Clara the ship and the symbols inside the ship before they try and kill them because they need to see the the glyphs in order to be able to transmit the message or it's stealing something that belongs to the people trapped inside the Faraday cage in order to draw them out I don't think it's anything other than this is theirs, I'm going to take it from them so that they have to come out and get it so I I don't know how clever it is but also her ghost has intelligence regarding this thing because she was alive when the doctor and Clara made the plan to have the phone put there. Right. So, anyway. Which is strange. While I'm thinking about it, what did you think of the Fisher King? Oh, wow. Um, I like the character. If you'll remember when we talked about the trailer a little while back, that was the character we were talking about that looked like this creepy bug-looking thing. And at that point, we had no reference, you know, or no knowledge of what it was supposed to be. But I'm just curious as to what you really thought about it. I I liked it. He was bizarre and kind of creepy enough to not really get, like, a full grasp of him, which is nice. Uh, I think you know having a little bit left, a little bit of mystery, in that regard, works. And he wasn't around for a whole heck of a lot of time during the episode, but I think it worked, because if you got too much of him, I think maybe a little bit of that mystique would have worn away. And of course, a lot of the time he and the Doctor are interacting, it's it's in the shadows there in the, the basement of the church. Mm-hmm. And so him going in and out of the shadows and the way that they frame a lot of those shots, uh, I think really works for him. Did you notice in the cafeteria section of the drum, did you notice the image on the wall? You mean the Star Trek guys getting attacked by a sea monster? 
It looked like a leviathan, basically. Yes. Did you notice the face of the creature on the wall? Oh, it's it's similar to the Fisher King. It's almost identical to the Fisher <laughs> King. And that the reason I bring it up is because I wonder if the Fisher King is really dead. Mm. I wonder if he's really dead or, you know, if maybe he... I wonder if the reason why the image is there in the first place is because there's been something that's happened with him since this first time we saw him that we don't get to see yet. Is he another one of these lock monsters in Scotland? I have no idea. Hmm. But it just made, it just made me think that if there might be something else that we'll find out about later that we'll find out that he's not really dead. That something has happened to him to allow him to come back. They could take that either way. Yeah. I mean, uh, he could be dead. It's entirely possible that he's dead because he got hit by a rushing wall of water. The doctor obviously assumes he's dead. Right. But he got hit by a rushing wall of water that, you know, presumably drowned him. But but this image we're he, seeing is in the future of, right. you know, of that. Right. And also the Fisher King seems like, you know, if he's able to fake death in order to, you know, long enough in order to be, you know, brought back to this place where he can escape, you know. And start over, basically. And start over. Who knows what the extent of his powers really are. And he obviously has a lot of intelligence and information about the Time Lords. Right. Because we get a nice little jab that he has uh, to the Doctor about the Time Lords. Do you have that quote up? Uh, yeah, I actually do. He says, The Time Lords, cowardly vain curators who suddenly remembered they had teeth and became the most warlike race in the galaxy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he even calls them more warlike than the Daleks. Which, yeah. Not a compliment. <laughs> um, uh, so, I mean, if but, you think about it, though, I mean, and I don't want to get heavily into it, but, you know, you could compare Rassilon to, to uh, uh, Davros... In, a, in some ways oh, yeah. because of what he's willing to do and if you guys don't know Rassilon was the leader of the Time Lords for a while so. yes yes he was uh, at several different points yeah he was he helped establish what the Time Lords became originally and then was resurrected during the Time lo- the Time War to help lead them and uh, it went a little bit nuts during the Time War now back on the drum Lun who is the only one who has not seen the writings, is sent out of the Faraday cage to go retrieve the phone. He finds it after a brief run-in run with the ghosts, all four of them now, uh, oh, five of them, excuse me, Prentice Moran, who is the leader, Pritchard, who is the, entre- the, uh, the money guy, and then, of course, the doctor and O'Donnell. He has a brief run-in with them where they just sort of surround him and look at him real closely and then leave him alone. A little bit creepy. He finds the phone and he grabs it and then gets himself locked in the cafeteria. (laughs) Of course, Clara gets antsy about the fact that he hasn't returned and she and Cass decide to go look for him. Cass is not a fan of Clara at this point because Clara was the one who sent Lun out in the first place. And, uh... Cass is wondering how traveling with, you know, if traveling with the doctor changed her. 
she's not happy because she feels Clara is putting Lund's life unnecessarily at risk. And we get to this point and we see the two of them get separated uh, because Cass knows this place better than Clara does. And also, <laughs> they you know they both start looking down opposite yeah. corridors and start following their corridors. And since they're sneaking around, no one notices the quiet. But then when Clara turns around and realizes that Cass has gone off a different direction, um, <laughs> she goes, crap. And then she starts calling for her, which is funny. And she's like, yeah. oh, wait. And then she's like, oh, I'm such an idiot. She can't yeah. hear her. <laughs> right. <laughs> but we get this really interesting scene where Moran, uh, who's the, the commander, is tracking Cass. This was straight out of a horror movie. Yeah. Because, <laughs> you know, Cass is deaf. She can't hear the fact that Moran has a fire axe that he is dragging across the metal bulkhead down the hall behind her in order to, you know, base chopper in half. Yeah. Not a good thing. And she can't hear him coming. But she gets this sensation that something's not right and she goes down to touch the floor to feel the vibrations in the floor and at the last minute figures out what's going on and is able to avoid the attack. And she takes off down the other side after <laughs> Moran gets frustrated in his assassination attempt. <laughs> um, yeah, and then she runs right into Clara, grabs her, and just keeps going. <laughs> She's dragging her along. <laughs> yep. <laughs> they then find Lun in the cafeteria, who says, Well, this was a trap. You shouldn't be here. And they're able to avoid the ghosts and take off again. The doctor has tried to return to the drum in order to stop what's going on. But the TARDIS will not take him back. The TARDIS returns him to the exact time that he landed earlier, just in a different location. He's and he, 30 minutes into the past. Yes. So he has to watch everything that just happened. And try to avoid himself. Uh, <laughs> in order, yeah, this was straight out of Back to the Future too. I yeah. mean, it really was. <laughs> but of course, Doctor Who's played with this before as well, uh, with Father's Day, <laughs> with Rose and Eccleston, right? <laughs> where you're not supposed to interact with your past or future self well, you'll or create whatever. A paradox like they did <laughs> paradoxes are not fun um, and he doesn't want the reapers coming back no 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 <laughs> although the amount of paradoxes created between that episode and now yeah without the reapers coming back i'm wondering if he got rid of them i don't know because especially especially with uh, 11 it was paradoxes for everyone. <laughs> you get a paradox, and you get a paradox. Paradoxes for everyone! <laughs> Oprah's giving away paradoxes this week on... Check under your chair. <laughs> <laughs> and you get a paradox. <laughs> but the only the thing was missing was Tom Cruise. <laughs> <laughs> Jumping on the couch. Yes. <laughs> oh, goodness. 
but the doctor is successfully able to avoid himself and stops Bennett from interfering with the past on a couple of occasions by sending Bennett back to the TARDIS. He then confronts the Fisher King, and we already talked a little bit about this, in the basement of the church. The Fisher King says that basically the the people, the ghosts, are set up in order to send a signal to call his people to the Earth in order to to rescue him and to conquer the planet and start over. Because they'd been kicked off typically um, by the, the new enslavers. Um, <laughs> the Doctor tricks the Fisher King, who's getting ready to put himself into the stasis pod, I would imagine, but tricks the Fisher King into going back to the ship by telling him he's erased the writing. Yeah, that that's not all the Doctor did, because the Doctor removed one of the power cells from the ship. Yes. Yes, he and did. You start to see the puzzle pieces start to fit together as to why things were the way they were at the beginning of the first episode. Yes, because the missing power cell is actually being used as a bomb to at the base of the dam. Of course, <laughs> the doctor sets the power cell off to explode. The dam starts to crack and break, and of course, the lake starts flooding the town. Meanwhile, the doctor has sealed himself into the stasis pod, and the Fisher King is left high and dry, or wet and drowned, as the case may be. <laughs> But is he really dead? <laughs> well, we will find out. I, I think the likely I think the likelihood of him being dead is greater than the likelihood of him being alive. I just like but, the idea of him becoming a recurring villain at some point, the same way as like Davros or the Master or you know, those types of characters. I just think he would yeah. be such a juicy character to use that way, you know. Yeah. maybe on like, you know, uh, the second tier level like the Santarans or something. But yeah, I think he would be a really neat character to see return, or others of his species. The interesting thing is, is that they use Britain's tallest man to play him, <laughs> as far as like the body. Uh, and so that's actually a person in there. There's no like stilts or anything. He's actually really that giant. Uh, who I forget his name, but he also hold on, I can find out. Fisher King, Neil Fingleton, who also apparently plays some stuff on Game of Thrones. Mm. Like some giants or something. If they'd have created him 20 years ago, they could have used Peter Mayhew. Mm. Very <laughs> true. But he's too busy being Chewbacca again. Um, oh, interesting. Star Wars connection in this episode. Peter Serafinowicz is the voice of the Fisher King. And for those who have no idea who the heck I'm talking about, Peter Serafinowicz provided the voice of Darth Maul in The Phantom Menace. Ah. So, uh, Ray Park was obviously the, the actor, the physical actor of Darth Maul, but they, they dubbed over his lines with Peter Serafinowicz because Ray Park, while he's extremely adept at what he does, does not necessarily have a menacing voice. <laughs> they, uh, the vibe that I got off of that, they wanted somebody with a silky, smooth, kind of almost snake-like hiss to Threatening. their voice, you know. Yeah. Which this guy but, actually has. <laughs> yes. Also, another Star Wars reference, Prentice's business card says, May the remorse be with you. 
is what his business card says. <laughs> oh, um, wow. So, and of course, like I said earlier, that, that painting in the cafeteria with the sea monster, mm-hmm. he's attacking basically the crew of the USS Enterprise. That's what they look like. The way they were dressed and everything, that's what they look like. Yep. Uh, just yep. slightly more generic versions of them. Exactly. But they were in, so, a, like, a Viking-style ship or something. You know, that was, yes. That was really strange. They're, uh, they're, <laughs> this episode is making hidden references to a whole bunch of sci-fi things. <laughs> uh, so, if we, you know, we've had a couple of Star Wars references. We also had Kirk, Spock, and I'm guessing Scotty, you know, show up in a painting. <laughs> so, it's funny. Uh, I like I like it when... Uh, Doctor Who does this sort of stuff. Um, <laughs> but anyway, let's get back to the story. The town gets flooded. The TARDIS with Bennett inside returns to the drum. And this is where everybody starts meeting up. Bennett and the rest of the crew and Clara all manage to get to the hangar when the stasis pod opens up and the Doctor pops out instead of the Fisher King. Of course, the doctor has been sleeping in there for 150 years, and as Paul alluded to at the beginning of this episode, pops out and says, Don't kiss me, morning breath. Um, (laughs) Turns out his ghost is actually a hologram uh, that's been transmitted from his sonic shades uh, as soon as the, the stasis pod was brought within range of their Wi-Fi, you know. He's programmed it to do these things uh, that Clara told him. The Doctor is able to, using his hologram ghost, lure the rest of the ghosts into the Faraday cage by mimicking the Fisher King's roar and seals them inside the Faraday cage, saving the day. Woohoo! You guys can go and look at our Facebook page. We've got a story up there Actually, Corey Taylor of Slipknot uh, actually did the roars for the Fisher King for this episode. I thought that was kind of cool. Uh, yeah, yeah. His yeah. his scream <laughs> uh, served as the base for the roar. Obviously, of course, they, they probably added some sort of animal and, you know, played with the pitch <laughs> up and down, all that fun stuff, because that's what they do. Some Chewbacca stuff, you know. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> but, yeah. That's really kind of cool that they they decided, hey, let's get like this hardcore screamo type of scream and use that as the basis for our our alien roar. Well, he's a professional, you know. (laughs) True. He's a professional screamer. Um, (laughs) Kind of like Jamie Lee Curtis Uh. is a professional screamer. (laughs) Sorry, anyway. Completely different way. (laughs) Right. Right, sorry. Did I say that? I did. Well, it is kind of fitting considering that this is the month for Halloween, so... Oh, yes, it is the month for Halloween. <laughs> hmm. Anyway, so the the ghosts have all been trapped inside the Faraday cage, and the danger is over. The doctor informs everybody the unit will come, take the Faraday cage out, and then Bob's your uncle, everything will be just fine. <laughs> of course, we learn that Bennett had feelings for O'Donnell, and now that she's a ghost, he's never going to be able to see her again, and he informs Lun to translate for him, and tells Lun to tell Cass that Lun actually 
has had feelings for him for a long time and that he wishes that he had been able to act on his and so Lun should act on on his feelings as well and Lun finds himself in this really awkward translating expressing his deepest feelings situation <laughs> and as we all would be yes <laughs> and he tries to back out of it and Cass of course you know embraces him and uh, you know happy ending for those two <laughs> and of course the doctor and clara get to go back off to the tardis and this is where things get you know this is where they just sort of drop one more bomb into your brain as the episode ends clara says well i'm really glad you were able to you know fix everything with a hologram and that sort of stuff and the doctor says well yes but i only knew what to program the hologram to say because my you told me what my ghost had already said <laughs> Which, of course, leaves us with the bootstrap paradox. Who really composed Beethoven's Fifth? <laughs> Which came first, the chicken or the egg? And are we making the chicken inside the egg or the egg inside the chicken? And what's going on? Ah! <laughs> the, the funny thing is, is, I went over and I watched this episode uh, with, with Kyle Avery, who was on our, our show recently, um, a couple episodes ago by this point. And after the episode ended and the the end credits were rolling we just sort of sat there staring at the tv screen and he goes he turns to me and said did they just pull the whole chicken egg thing again <laughs> I, although i don't remember if he said that or if i did but we just both sort of just stood there going ah, 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 what you know my brain hurts Right. <laughs> this is one of those episodes where, at the end of it all, your brain just goes, ah, stop it. <laughs> it's hurting too much. I, I actually have a story uh, that I am playing with in my brain that actually has a bootstrap paradox in it. Oh? Uh, yeah. It, the, the entire story is cyclical, but you don't find that out until like six years has gone by and you know, worth the stories, you know. So, yeah. Mm, oh, oh, you you've got your your own like story for like, you know, yeah. a tale. Interesting, interesting. We may yeah. have to hear that story at some point. It would take a little while. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not Doctor Who related, so you know, probably have to uh, talk about it somewhere else. Well. <laughs> huh random thought what if the opening scene from this episode where he, he does the whole Beethoven's fifth monologue mm -hmm. really takes place at the end at the end and he's talking and, to Clara and he's talking to Clara and the audience's perspective is Clara's perspective and that's so that's actually that makes a lot of sense oh <laughs> I didn't even realize that. I didn't even think about that until like right now, reading yeah. the Wikipedia, the the TARDIS wiki, where it says he begins to explain to her the idea of the bootstrap paradox. And I was like, wait a second. Yeah. <laughs> Are we making this episode a circle again? <laughs> circles within circles. <laughs> well, you know, in the last story, um, we had the ending in the middle. Uh, as well mm -hmm. so that's kind of twice now that that's happened in two stories back to back right right they, they sort of jump 
either the ending or the beginning to a different part of the story, and then they mm-hmm. hit back to where the, you know, the actual through line is that we were left with before. Um, they like playing with us this, this season, and we'll see if that keeps on. I wonder if that's a theme, you know? <laughs> it could be. It could be. Or they're just having, I, I don't know. Maybe that's a, a theme for this season, yeah. That's possible. All right, well, let's start wrapping up our discussion on this. Is there any final thoughts you wanted to give on, on these two episodes, on, on this storyline? And then uh, how would you rate this That's story. what I was going to say. I was, I was going to give you my rating. Yeah. How uh, many Fisher Kings would you give this story? Uh, I'm going to say... I'm going to say maybe an eight. An eight? Yeah. Because I'm going to rate the first half lower than I would the second half. Mm-hmm. And I think the second half was really good. So I'm going to say somewhere around an eight. Okay. All right, I'm only because I feel like there should have been a little bit more character development at the front end of it. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to give. I'll give this story a seven and a half, overall, and I, I'm going to agree with you that that the the second episode before the flood definitely brought it up. Uh, the first episode under the lake was was nice and kind of intriguing, but there was a lot of groundwork being laid and a lot of uh, things that they had to get settled. Whereas with the first story arc, the first story that we got this season with, with Davros, where the the opening episode seemed stronger than the second episode, for me anyways, right. this time it was the other way around. The first episode was weaker than the second episode, and I think that overall is is better for the story because the punch comes at the end and you're left right. going, wow, or something like that, which is good. Not that I wasn't left like that with Davros, just, you know, and of course you can hear our thoughts on that a couple episodes ago, but... <laughs> Go back and listen. Yes, if you haven't already. <laughs> but or listen this, again. <laughs> you want to. But this time with uh, Before the Flood being, I won't say so much better, but definitely better than Under the Lake, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, my overall thoughts on the story as a whole definitely were were elevated. And of course, like I said earlier, his who wrote Beethoven's fifth monologue at the beginning of, of Before the Flood is probably one of my favorite things I've seen this season so far. So that being said, it left a really good taste in my mouth at the end, so I'm going to be generous and give it a, a seven and a half. Fisher yeah, Kings. I- I almost did. I almost did that too. I almost gave a seven and a half, but I was being very generous. I, I still kind of felt the same way with this one that I felt with the last one. You know, it was like I felt like the first half should have been like the first third, and then like the second half should have been a, another two parter almost. You know? Okay. Because there's so much that they could have done with it, and you could have put a lot more Fisher King in there if they did it that way. Gotcha. And you're a fan of the Fisher King. I am. I think he's a really cool character. All right. Well, I think we can start rounding this out. Uh, of course, uh, this weekend, uh, by the time this episode gets out, it may be the day of the showing. Uh, we will be seeing episode five of series nine, The Girl Who Died, which will be followed next weekend by The Woman Who Lived. And we are assuming those to be another two-parter. Uh, maybe not quite as connected as the first two, but definitely probably uh, connected in some way 
we do know they both have Maisie Williams in them. So. Yes. Yes. And so we're going to save those and talk about them together. So our next episode, uh, we will be deviating from our reviews as usual this season. And we are going to be talking about our top five scariest Doctor Who episodes as we prepare for Halloween. Maybe you'll be able to be, <laughs> maybe you'll be inspired by our list for some Halloween watching. Uh, Halloween Who watching um, <laughs> after The Woman Who Lived aired, because The Woman Who Lived is... Nope, The Woman Who Lived is not going to be on Halloween. That's the Zygon invasion. Never mind. Anyway, I'm blathering again. But... <laughs> but yes, our, our top five scariest Doctor Who episodes will be next. And of course, as usual with these sort of things, we want your input on that. If you have some scary episodes... Uh, that you'd like to contribute and uh, have mentioned on the show, please write in to our our social media, which is facebook.com slash talkingtimelords. We are at talkingtimelord on Twitter, or you can email us at talkingtimelords at gmail.com. Of course, our TARDIS on the internet is going to be talkingtimelords.com. I do want to give one quick uh, plug to one of my own projects. Uh, I did post it on our Facebook page, uh, I, in my spare time, what little of that there is, I like to sort of make these little tribute videos and sort of, and that sort of thing, and uh, mainly Star Wars, but I'm starting to introduce Doctor Who into that, and my first Doctor Who tribute video was, was finished, and that is all about Susan, the first companion. Um, so, it's about three and a half minutes long, or something, and if you would like, go check it out. Uh, you can either find it on our Facebook page or just search Susan, the First Companion, on YouTube. So, I had a lot of fun putting it together, and hopefully you guys like it. We might even talk Jason into putting it on our YouTube page for a podcast. Oh, perhaps. <laughs> perhaps. <laughs> Which has... Has been a little bit uh, sparse. Sparse of late. We understand. <laughs> it's, we know. It's, it's my fault. <laughs> and we we're gearing up to to get stuff back yeah. onto our YouTube page in the near future. It's just there's been a lot of life happening. Yes. Uh, namely the fact that Paul, who's uh, been in charge of, of trying to put our our podcasts on YouTube, uh, moved recently. <laughs> and I'm still living out of boxes in half my house. So. Yeah. Yeah. So. Uh, once things get settled down at the house there for Paul, we will start getting our episodes up on YouTube for those of you who like to listen to them on YouTube. Although why you listen to the podcast version, I don't know. Uh, but if you have friends who like to listen to it on YouTube, uh, give them a heads up. (laughs) Any final thoughts, Paul, before we, we wrap up this episode? In the meantime, feel free to invade our planet and take us as your prisoners for your enjoyment. (laughs) (laughs) I had to, dude. I'm sorry. (laughs) Alba Prentice, the Tivolian. I I liked him. I liked him. I liked him a lot better when he was alive than when he was a ghost. Uh, (laughs) Anyway. I think he was one of the creepiest looking ones of them all. Well, yes. There was just... Something not right about the way he looked. It's it's the wispy <laughs> buck teeth. It had to be. It had to be. Yeah. Anyway, that, I think, <laughs> will wrap up this episode of Talking Time Lords. This has been episode number 20, Under the Flood. 
for Paul. I'm Jason, and remember, until next time... May you hope far-flung hopes and dream impossible dreams. Thanks, guys. Talking Time Lords is a proud member of the Thunderquack Podcast Network. Visit thunderquack.com to see their entire catalog of podcasts, or visit patreon.com slash thunderquack to help support the shows.